Well, hello again, everybody. No, you're not imagining it. It is actually me, Andy Roberts. I'm back after a bit of a holiday, and I'm ready to unload a whole tide of new horror movies upon you. Now, as you'll know, I'm on a personal quest to trawl through the murky waters of the video nasty era in Britain, when a fabled list of horror films was banned by the government with censorship crackdowns following in the aftermath. Now, because there's a wealth of material already on this particular meta-genre of horror, I'm instead looking at the films that did not get their time in the limelight and were absent from the DPP's infamous Video Nasties list. Now, the films I'm delving into, however, are from the same stock as the Nasties. They share some similar actors, they have similar themes, the same genres and even the same crew members, and some of them were actually even seized by the police in an unofficial capacity, often due to the incompetence of the whole debacle. And that's exactly what this show, the Nasty Pasty Podcast, is all about. So in this grand return to the stage, this episode is focusing on a rather old area of exploitation that has become something of a a relic in today's film world. Today's episode is on two non-sploitation pictures, 1974's Flavia the Heretic and 1971's The Devils. Now, when I paired these films together, I was under the impression that they were full-on exploitation films regarding nuns. So I was surprised, after I watched them, that they're actually quite atypical for that genre. And in fact, they're closer in tone to historical horror flicks. Now, we'll get onto the films themselves in just a moment, but I'll briefly recount exactly what non-exploitation and historical horror is. Now, as the name suggests, non-exploitation is an exploitation genre focused specifically on nuns. Whilst not exclusive to the genre, it frequently features emphasis on the sexual urges of devoutly religious women who are repressed either through their religious vows, the influence of men, or a particularly aggressive mother superior. Often, nuns in these films will give in to their desires and engage with sexual activity on their own, with other nuns, other clergymen, and even with inanimate objects, to showcase that deep level of their repressed feelings. Films in this genre also prevent conflicting and contradictory attitudes from the religious institutions featured, such as those in authority abusing their positions for sexual gratification, whilst the lowly nuns are punished for being discovered to have indulged in carnal activity. Now, films in this genre, as well, often end with the sexually active characters being punished with death, to highlight the injustice of religious persecution and the repression of natural urges. Historical horror, on the other hand, is actually very close in subject matter, being almost intrinsically linked with religion. Instead of focusing on nuns, however, the genre displays its shocks by showing the raw reality of history, the horror conveyed by the massively draconian treatment of its characters due to the time period in which it's set. Frequently, the films contain religious persecution against innocent people, often accused of witchcraft, blasphemy or heresy. Films in this genre often feature sexual violence and scenes of graphic torture, usually committed with arcane methods like thumbscrews, stretching racks or tongue extractors. The two genres' reliance on religiously based shocks makes them frequently blend together in similar films, which is what has happened really with this week's examples. So let's hit off proceedings with Gianfranco Mingozzi's Flavia the Heretic.
Young Flavia comes across a scene of desolation with countless dead bodies. Seeing one alive, she goes over to him and smiles, but her father suddenly appears and decapitates the man. Flavia is sent away to a convent to become a nun as a result. Years later, around the year 1400, Flavia is still praying and frequently daydreams about the soldier she tried to talk to. A group of crazy wanderers known as the Tarantula Cult, due to a tarantula supposedly having bit them, arrives at the convent and starts to dance maniacally, asking for relief from their symptoms. Noticing their sexual movements, Sister Livia becomes tempted and prays to be bitten too, caressing herself longingly. Flavia visits her Jewish friend Abraham, who tells her that the first woman in the scriptures was Lilith, who was made from refuse and dung. Annoyed, Flavia complains that the deacons and the bishops are all men, and that women's decisions are made by men, compounded further when she witnesses a horse being gelded on the convent's orders. Sister Livia is punished for her show of indecency by having Don Diego, Flavia's father, take her away. Flavia follows and discovers the new duke raping a female farmhand. Trying to stop him only results in the duke taunting her that she only wishes it was her under him, and he threatens her. She becomes more and more disillusioned, questioning a statue of Christ, why God, himself, and even the twelve apostles are all men. Livia is condemned to death by Diego and is cruelly tortured to death by his followers, who burn her breasts with boiling wax before cutting her nipples off. Finally snapped, Flavia declares that she's not going back to the convent, and she asks Abraham to run away with her. They reach the shores and they play around on the beach, but the next morning, however, they're captured by Diego's men and flogged for punishment. Returned to the convent, Flavia has a vision of a saint offering her his sword, only to snatch it away and is told by Sister Agatha that men restrict women constantly because they're afraid of losing their power. On an excursion, Agatha tries to teach Flavia liberal ideas, such as pleasuring herself and ideas of becoming Pope despite being female. Muslim ships suddenly invade the shoreline, sending Sister Agatha into a frenzy regarding all the Christians who flee at the mere sight of them. Flavia too begins to rejoice as she feels a new world is within reach, and she notices a young Muslim who reminds her of the man she saw when she was young. When he's knocked from his horse by the new duke, Agatha tries to intervene and is stabbed through the chest with a pike. The duke is eventually captured by the Muslim soldiers, and the man, named Ahmed, takes Flavia in and makes love to her. She strikes a deal with him to get revenge on all those who've wronged her, starting with the convent which is attacked by Ahmed and his men. Flavia rides into the hall and demands that the nuns be captured. Agatha is given a respectful funeral by the Muslims, who allow Flavia to conduct the ceremony herself. Flavia has the girl who the Duke raped earlier take her revenge by having sex with him against his will, but when he seizes the opportunity for himself, Flavia orders Ahmed's men to do what they want with him. As a result, two of the men rape the Duke and then cut his throat during the act. Flavia force-feeds the captured nuns a potion that mimics the tarantula cult, causing them to frolic about in a sexual frenzy. In bliss at her revenge so far, she makes love to Ahmed once again and indulges in hashish, causing her to have a bizarre phantasmagorical vision of the saint, Agatha returning from the dead, an orgy involving the entire Muslim castle, and Sister Livia hiding in a cow's corpse. She wakes from her vision the next morning, noticing the convent mostly empty, with Ahmed outside fighting against the returning Don Diego's men. Donning a suit of armour, Flavia joins the fight and assists in her father's death, as well as saving Abraham from being killed by the victorious Muslim army. Ahmed, however, appears and decapitates Abraham due to his religion, 
leaving Flavia to compare it with how she ended up in the convent in the first place. She rejects Ahmed, who wants to take her as his wife, causing him to abandon her and leave the area with his army. Flavia wanders aimlessly alone, only to be finally captured by the Christians and flayed to death for her crimes. Bless the heathen and damn you Christian men! Run for fear of the Muslims! If you must go, run your bulls off! Woman, where are you going? The Muslims can do nothing to you that Christians haven't done! <laughs> ah! Look at this courageous youth! <laughs> this example of lord and master! <laughs> now tell me, who holds the commanding stick? <laughs> Fear <Feel> that! <laughs> oh, look how soft and small your pride's become! <laughs> you farmers, priests, nobles, soldiers, ha! Huh? Think you're important, huh? Try to find your power now. Your courage is gone, and soon so will you. All of you, be gone! Bless these Muslims for putting fear into these pompous Christians. What are you running away for? Oh, sister, help us! From the men who use you, or from the masses who starve It's the Muslims! What do you mean by the Muslims? Have you ever seen them? Let's go and have a look. Sometimes known as Rebel Nun, the Heretic, or Flavia, Priestess of Violence, Flavia the Heretic is a 1974 non-sploitation film directed by Gianfranco Mingozzi. Unlike most non-sploitation pictures, the film is actually less exploitative than one might imagine, and it actually has more of a serious tone with something actually to say. The film is not without its share of shocks, however, and it does have a particularly nasty edge when it comes to some of the violent scenes. Reportedly based on an actual event, the film follows a young nun who snaps after suffering oppression from her religious superiors. Our main drive of the film is in the form of Flavia, played extremely well by Brazilian actress Florinda Balkan, whom we've seen in The Last House on the Beach previously. From a very young age, Flavia is taught without mercy that not only does she lack the right to have desirable feelings towards men, she's locked into a religious classification that results in her being confined in a convent for demonstrating a slight rebelliousness. As she grows into an adult, her once childish playfulness towards men has become a matured sensual desire, which is constantly repressed by the despotic mother superior. It's easy for the viewer to get behind Flavia as we witness her cruel treatment right from the get-go, Her father is unrelenting and malicious, seemingly out of religious fervour, and he condemns his daughter to a life of religious servitude simply for for displaying rather normal teenage rebellion. The fact that we see her rather strict regime at the convent, balanced with her sexualised daydreaming during prayers, brings her constant plight right to the foreground. The film clearly shows the patriarchal control that religion offers – Flavia's friend, friend, sister Livia, is brutally tortured sexually and murdered for daring to bear her breasts. Her friend Abraham is banished away for being a Jew, and many stallions on the grounds are castrated, as one stallion is more than enough for the mares. The Duke rapes his underlings at a moment's whim, and those afflicted by the bite of the tarantula, seemingly some sort of fever, are left to wander the wastes alone due to their provocative movements. We watch along with Flavia, who becomes more aware of this injustice, and it's hard as a viewer not to cheer her on when she finally breaks away from her world and decides to do something about the tyranny she's suffered. 
The only other character who shares her beliefs, Sister Agatha, has clearly suffered the unfairness for a lot longer, and is much more zealous in her approach to the problem. When the Muslims invade the area, she cackles with glee, happy that something has finally struck fear into the devout Christians all around her. One of the most memorable lines she utters is, Why are you so afraid? They won't do anything to you that the Christians haven't already done. This line sort of reveals the entire film's double-edged gist. Flavia is pretty much liberated from her plight by the arrival of Ahmed, who not only treats her lavishly and intimately, but allows her to seek the revenge that she wants so badly. She dispenses it with an almost poetic vigour, allowing a rape victim to rape back in revenge, and feeding the repressed nuns and the Mother Superior a tonic that causes them to feel the sensual heat that they've forever suppressed within themselves. But this comes at a tremendous cost. After her revenge is complete, her Jewish friend Abraham is slain by Ahmed due to their opposing religious beliefs. While the Muslims have saved her in one avenue, ultimately it's still an oppressive religion and it causes her pain in just a different way. Almost despondent at discovering this, Flavia rejects Ahmed as a result and is left without a religion at all. This, dis- this ultimately leads to her death at the hands of the puritanical Christians, who tie her to a tree and in a squirm-inducing scene flay the skin from her legs. The film quite accurately depicts the quagmire that women of the 14th century faced, oppression in all areas based on religious grounds. Any attempt to rebel against this male-dominated control was both swift and brutal. Flavia is in essence then sort of a tragic hero, who successfully rebels from her male-imposed regime, only to learn a little too late that she's simply in another man's regime. Thankfully, we've come a long way since those days, though we do still have a ways to go. The oppression of religious zeal, however, is far from gone. It manifests in the West in a much more stealthy fashion, such as America, who still finds it hard to separate church from state, whilst in the East, Muslim-majority countries like Saudi Arabia continue to treat women as lower-class human beings who don't deserve equal treatment. Florinda Balkan plays Flavia, who'd been in stuff like The Last House on the Beach before, and also Fulci's two giallo films, Don't Torture a Duckling and A Lizard in a Woman's Skin. She also pops up in next week's film, The Damned, so you eagle-eyed viewers will notice that right away. Abraham is played by Claudio Cassinelli, a rather prominent Italian exploitation actor who'd been in Sergio Martino's so-called Jungle Trilogy, which included the video nasty Mountain of the Cannibal God, uh, Island of the Mutations, or sometimes known as Screamers or Isle of the Fishmen, and also The Great Alligator. He also turns up in the Giallo pictures What Have They Done to Your Daughters?, and The Scorpion with the Two Tails. But his final picture was the action flick Hands of Steel, in which he tragically died filming his scenes when the helicopter he was occupying crashed. Ahmed was portrayed by British actor Anthony Higgins, who'd later crop up in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and British TV programmes like Law and Order UK and Pete Practice. The repugnant Duke character was played by Spiros Fokas, who'd go on to star in The Jewel of the Nile and also Rambo 3. The Mother Superior was played by Jane Pratt of the giallo film Watch Me When I Kill, whilst one of the Tarantula cult members was played by Laura DeMarkey, known mostly for her face-melting appearance in Fulci's The Beyond. Director Gianfranco Mingozzi had a relatively small directing career, having graduated from being an assistant director on big pictures like La Dolce Vita. The majority of his later directorial work was for Italian TV and for documentary projects. Now, this film had six credited writers, one of which was Mingozzi, while some of them had worked in Italian horror before, such as Bruno Di Geronimo from What Have You Done to Solange. 
The hauntingly beautiful and sad music came from Nicola Piovani, who'd lent his talents to the Giallo film The Perfume of the Lady in Black, and most recently, Larry David's comedy programme Curb Your Enthusiasm, which I believe is actually that little tinkle at the beginning of each episode. The cinematography was courtesy of Alfio Contini, who'd previously worked on the erotic Nazi thriller The Night Porter, which we're covering next week, whilst the film was edited by Ruggiero Mastroianni, who went on to work on Beyond the Door. The film's quite harrowing special makeup effects, including a nipple being sliced off, several decapitations, and a leg being flayed, are due to makeup artist Mario Mechisanti, who has since gone on to much higher budget films, like Gangs of New York, Passion of the Christ, and Jumper. One of the few special effects, though, that was not so special was the real animal cruelty of castrating a stallion. This scene is currently included on the modern UK release as well, presumably because gelding is a legitimate practice amongst unruly stallions, and it does have medical connotations rather than simply to inflict pain or suffering. During the nasty scare, there were some copies of Flavia the Heretic being passed around via collectors, under the title Rebel Nun. It is, however, impossible to to determine which print was used, as there are conflicting reports of both English-language releases and Italian-language variants being traded around. But the first legitimate instance of Flavia the Heretic on VHS was in 1994 from Redemption Video, long after the nasty scare was over. This version, however, was heavily cut by one and a half minutes. It removed the horse castration, the Duke raping the farm girl, Sister Livia's breast being burnt and cut, and Flavia's skin being torn off, and also some minor instances of full frontal nudity. It wasn't until 2008 when Shameless were able to have the film passed fully uncut for DVD release. And that was Flavia the Heretic, everybody. Very genuinely surprising, as the DVD cover from Shameless made this out to look a lot more provocative and sleazy than it actually is. I like how appropriate that is, though, based on this subject. Very often during the Nasty Scare, the police were seizing these titles simply based on the cover, without considering what the film was actually like. So, and more fool me, eh? Anyhow, let's get on to the next film, which is Ken Russell's The Devils.
Louis XIII accepts a proposition from the French cardinal in a secret objective to, pre- to prevent the rise of the Protestants. In the French town of Loudon, Urbain Grandier has become the governor since the previous one has died, sending the nuns of the nearby convent into a frenzy due to his good looks, especially the abbess, Sister Jeanne d'Anger. Grandier is having an affair with the daughter of a local priest, but he rejects her when she announces that she's pregnant, causing her father to attack him. Another girl, Madeline, confesses her love for Grandier during confession, and later in his home, he confesses that though he has slept with many girls, he reciprocates her love. Sister Jeanne continues to have uncontrollable visions of herself with Grandier, while Madeline and Grandier discuss marriage. They eventually get married in secret, while Sister Jeanne writes to Grandier, asking him to become the new confessor at the convent. She soon finds out about the secret marriage through her nuns, who are reenacting the scene in fun, and she attacks Madeline when she sees her next. When she sees that Mignon, whose Grandier's acquaintance, is the new confessor rather than Grandier, she informs him of his sins and infers that she's being possessed by him. In response, Mignon summons witch hunter Father Barret to exorcise Sister Jeanne and glean what's happened. Facing humiliation in front of everybody, she embellishes the story and is immediately believed by Barry, who subjects her to an examination and an enema filled with hot holy water. For their reaction to Jeanne's forced exorcism, the rest of the nuns are to be executed, until Barre has the idea that they too must be possessed by Grandier's evil. Sensing a way out, the nuns begin to act outrageously, such as stripping and revelling all over town, causing Barret to proclaim to cure them and using it as proof of their possession. Louis XIII, disguised as a visiting duke, claims to have a relic that can fix their possessions instantly. The nuns cease their behaviour straight away, only for Louis to reveal that the relic box is in fact empty, revealing the ruse for exactly what it is. But despite this, the nuns return to their behaviour and the exorcisms continue, culminating in an orgy between the nuns, some of the men, and a statue of Christ. Grandier and Madeline are arrested upon their return to the town, with Grandier suffering tortures and false statements being instigated by the prosecution on behalf of the possessed nuns. Sister Jeanne, realising the trouble that he's now getting in, tries to commit suicide, and when she fails, she confesses to Mignon that she lied. Barret, however, finds it only proof that her exorcism has failed, while the prosecution uses all the evidence it has got from Grandier's house as proof to execute him. The court finds him guilty and sentences him to death to be burned to death at the stake. He has his legs broken in order to gain his confession, but despite his pain, he refuses to confess, which finally convinces Mignon that he must be innocent after all. Still refusing, Grandier is burned to death at the stake as the city walls are blown up, in contempt of his final wishes. Mignon is locked away after claiming they've killed an innocent man, while Sister Jeanne is given the burnt femur of Grandier as a grotesque souvenir, which she pitifully uses to masturbate with. Madeline, now free, climbs over the broken city walls and runs away into the desolate countryside. I must ask your forgiveness, priest, for what I must do. But you can make a speech if you like, and before the fire is lit, I shall strangle you. It will be quick, I promise you. Confess! Confess! Beg forgiveness! Bulk 
Forgive me for defending your city so badly! Confess, confess! See how he flinches! See how he denies his redeemer! Confess! I have finished confessing. Give me the kiss of peace and let me die. Kiss the devil. Kiss the evil fiend! The Antichrist will sink of all iniquity, all evil! Probably one of the most controversial historical films in film history, even today remaining censored to multiple degrees, The Devils is a 1971 horror picture based on the real-life execution of Urban Grandier and the so-called Ludon Possessions. While Ken Russell's film dramatises the events and has a predominantly British perspective and setting, the film's plot is surprisingly accurate to the real-life event which makes the film's events all the more shocking to behold. To better understand the film's contents, we have to cast our minds back to the 17th century in France, where a group of Ursuline nuns, led by their mother's superior, Sister Jeanne d'Angers, accused the licentious but well-regarded priest, Urbain Grandier, of using witchcraft to possess them with demons. Despite being well-connected, Grandier had made enemies in the form of Chastaina de la Roche-Posay and Father Mignon, who was the confessor of the nuns in question. It's unknown whether Sister Jeanne approached Mignon first to complain about the possessions, or whether Mignon briefed her on how to start the process. But nevertheless, Sister Jeanne and several other nuns started to claim that they were being possessed by demons, fostered by erotic dreams of Grandier. Mignon and his aide, Father Barret, immediately began to exercise the nuns, whose behaviour had descended into convulsions, barking, sexual movements and contortions, as well as blaspheming. Although the exorcisms ceased at one point, they resumed in full force once another enemy of Grandier's, Jean de Labardement, got involved. The exorcisms then became public and much more disturbing, with the exorcists in charge almost soliciting more outrageous behaviour from the nuns. With the public watching, the hysteria swelled with an uncontrollable speed, especially as some of Grandier's many lovers came forward with claims of his sexual power over them. Sister Jeanne also suffered a phantom pregnancy in the middle of this, only adding to the collective hysteria and causing Grandier himself to panic. 
He attempted to discount the nuns' claims of being possessed, but unfortunately the nuns had been coached prior by the exorcists. After a suspicious pact was written in reverse Latin and signed in blood, Grandier was arrested and put to the question of witchcraft. In custody, Grandier was shaved all over, and a search was conducted for insensitive areas of the body, known as the Devil's Marks. The inspection was clearly a hoax. Grandier had been blinded by this point, and the examiner used the sharp end of a rod to stab certain areas of the body to glean a painful reaction, whilst he used the blunted end with little force to elicit no reaction when needed. During the trial, probably realising just how serious the result could be, a lot of the possessed nuns claimed that they had lied about their possessions. Even Sister Jeanne arrived in court with a noose around her neck, claiming that she would commit suicide if she was not allowed to retract her false statements. Lobardemont, however, dismissed their statements as a trick of Satan's in order to spare Grandier's life, and vowed that if anyone testified further in Grandier's defence, they'd be arrested for treason and lose all their possessions. With all of Grandier's defenders fleeing at the prospect of losing everything, 72 accusers were all that were left during the trial, and Grandier was found guilty beyond doubt, to be burned at the stake. His suffering was not over, however. He was subject to torture in order to gain a confession, which was detailed in the Malleus Maleficarum. Specifically, he was subject to both the water cure torture, forced to drink copious amounts of water to avoid drowning, and the Spanish boot, in which a red-hot plate of spikes was hammered into his legs, and wooden wedges driven in between to increase the pressure and eventually shatter his legs and ankles. Grandier never confessed, even while under duress, which caused his torturers to ultimately break both of his legs. At the execution, he was promised both a final statement before it commenced, and he was to be hung before the fire was set. The angry crowd and the other monks, though, threw holy water at his face to drown out his words, and the frenzy grew to such a degree that the executioner set the fire before Grandier was hung, causing him to be burned alive. As you can see, the film is actually really rather faithful to the real event. What's added into Russell's version, however, is the focus on Sister Jeanne as the instigator of the events, driven by a sexual jealousy caused by Grandier's marriage to Madeleine, as well as, rather effectively, but oddly, there's certainly a black comedy arising from the entire thing. Being British in origin, some of the film's set pieces, such as the Louis XIII character and some of Grandier's insults, are actually quite humorous, and they allow a small breather to be taken from the more intense scenes in the film. Of course, it doesn't quite prepare anyone for the large-scale debauchery that the film depicts. Made much more horrific to see, by the virtue that the viewer is aware of the baseless fabrication it sprouted from, the scenes of nuns frolicking about in a disturbed sexual fashion is genuinely shocking. They can tour around, they strip, they frig themselves, they lit candles, and even grope a statue of Christ. There's even some of the elements of non-sploitation on offer, with the clearly sexually repressed nuns displaying their sexuality in bizarre methods, especially in the character of Sister Jeanne, who flagellates herself in an almost lustful fashion. It's not hard to see why the film was so controversial in the US, and even in 1970s Britain, with religion even today playing such a large part of American culture. Another aspect that is done extremely well is the character of Grandier, who's played by Oliver Reed. Now at first he's presented as a rather chauvinistic fool, who dispenses with women once he's taken his pleasure and is generally irresponsible as a clergyman. But as the film goes on, his much more noble qualities start to emerge, 
such as quelling the pain of a dying woman, or passionately opposing the destruction of his own city's walls. By the time his life begins to fall apart due to the false accusations, the viewer does feel genuinely sorry for the man, as his carnal actions, while immature and juvenile, they certainly don't require the riposte of witchcraft accusation and death by burning. And despite the film's rather scathing depiction of organised religion, it's notable that in contradiction to his lustful behaviour, Grandier is the only character who refuses to lose faith in his god and remains devout even whilst suffering heinous tortures and false accusations. The film came about when Ken Russell wrote the screenplay based on The Devils of Ludon, which was a non-fictional account of the trials by Aldous Huxley. Because a play version was devised in 1961, Russell took inspiration from the dramatised account and used it as an influence in his vision for the film. Filming started and concluded in the summertime of 1970. The fictionalised depiction of the city of Loudon was designed by Derek Jarman with an anachronistic ivory-tiled style that melded with the off-white costumes of the Ursuline nuns to give it a sense of timelessness. I'm not sure myself whether that's entirely successful, but the set design of the film, while clearly a period piece combined with the Britishness of the cast, it clearly clashes with what the real Loudon would have looked like, and it does allow the film to have its own rather unsettling effect as though Loudon was a fantastical British city. This style was purportedly inspired by the 1927 film Metropolis, by director Fritz Lang. On the subject of the city, the walls that are demolished in the film's climax had to be rebuilt and re-exploded, as on the first take, director Ken Russell accidentally detonated them far too early, and the cameras were not pointed at the destruction. This reconstruction took almost a month, but ended up being reshot correctly. Oliver Reed portrays the main protagonist, Grandier, and it's hard to find anyone who hasn't really heard of this guy. A very prolific actor who struggled with alcoholism, Reed ended up playing the villainous Bill Sykes in the musical Oliver, and he also made appearances in the horror pictures Burnt Offerings and Spasms. His final film appearance would be alongside Russell Crowe in the Ridley Scott film Gladiator, having passed away in 1999. Vanessa Redgrave, who played the ambivalent sister Jean, too had a very prominent career, having appeared in Oh What a Lovely War, uh, Mary Queen of Scots, and the 1974 version of The Murder on the Orient Express. Other recognisable British faces also pop up, like Brian Murphy from George and Mildred, Murray Melvin from Jonathan Creek, and even Gemma Jones, who went on to portray Madame Pomfrey in the Harry Potter franchise, and she stars in this as Grandier's secret wife Madeline. Even the British model Twiggy and her manager Justin de Villeneuve had a cameo during the courtroom scene. Originally, Glenda Jackson was offered the role of Sister Jeanne, but she refused as her roles with Ken Russell were often neurotic, sexually frustrated women, and she wanted to avoid being typecast. Spike Milligan was originally to play Baron de la Bordemont, but Russell recast it when he suspected Milligan wouldn't be convincing as a serious character. British director Ken Russell, he'd worked primarily in TV and documentaries throughout his career, but he did have a small concentration of rather high-profile films between 1970 and 1984, including The Devils, a 1971 musical The Boyfriend, who starred British model Twiggy, science fiction thriller Altered States with William Hurt, and the erotic thriller Crimes of Passion with Kathleen Turner and Anthony Perkins. He returned to TV films until his death in 2011 at the age of 84. Producer Roy Baird went on to produce the British mod movie, Quadrophenia, and also the crime film, McVicar. 
He'd even done some work as an assistant director on productions like the 1967 version of Casino Royale. Fellow producer Robert H. Solo, who'd produced the 1970 musical adaptation A Christmas Carol, or called Scrooge, went on to produce the 1978 version of Invasions of the Body Snatchers, as well as the Steven Seagal movie Above the Law. Now, the cinematographer was David Watkin. He returned to work with Russell on his next film, The Boyfriend, but Watkin would branch out into multiple genres, such as the children's fantasy sequel to The Wizard of Oz, 1985's Return to Oz, as well as the drama with Robert Redford and Meryl Streep, Out of Africa, which was released in this, later the same year. Editor Michael Bradsell equally worked on The Boyfriend with Ken Russell, and went on to be the editor of another controversial British title, 1979's Scum, with Ray Winston. But clearly the most successful crew member would be the special effects guy John Richardson. After his work concluded on The Devils, he worked on Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dogs, and a whole bunch of notable titles that most people have heard of, such as the science fiction film Rollerball, The Omen, Superman, Moonraker, Disney's The Watcher in the Woods, Octopussy, A View to a Kill, James Cameron's Aliens, Willow, Starship Troopers, Deep Blue Sea, Men in Black 2, Die Another Day, and the entirety of the Harry Potter franchise. Now, the film has had a rather pockmarked censorship history, causing almost immediate controversy wherever it was released. On its initial release, Warner Brothers refused to release the film until Russell had made cuts to tone down the graphic violence and the sexuality. It's unknown just how much material was cut from this initial phase, but the resultant, finished product, was around 112 minutes long. The US film censors, however, were not happy with this edit, and they heavily cut the film to obtain an X rating, leaving the film running at 109 minutes, removing almost three minutes of footage. The UK censors, whilst equally not happy, merely removed an extra 89 seconds and classified it X, making the total running time 111 minutes. The most contentious scenes which were removed were the so-called Rape of Christ sequence, in which the orgiastic nuns remove a statue of Christ from the wall and begin sexually molesting it, and the climax, no pun intended, where Sister Jeanne masturbates with Grandier's blackened femur. For almost all the video releases, including a 1982 VHS release in the UK, a further butchered cut of the film, running at 103 minutes, done to obtain an R rating in the US, was used and had been for many years, the original cut footage seemingly lost. It was, however, in 2002 that film critic Mark Commode found the old film reels of the missing sequences in a film warehouse, and immediately asked Warner Brothers to restore the footage for a new release. Warner Brothers, however, refused to allow the censored footage to be reinstated, and Commode was only able to showcase this lost footage as part of the documentary Hell on Earth. A restored director's cut, though, with the found footage spliced back in, was approved for exhibition on just three occasions. The Brussels International Festival of Fantasy Film in March 2006, a showing at the University of Southampton in April 2007, and finally at the London East End Film Festival in April 2011, just a few months before the death of Ken Russell. These are the only times that the fullest possible version has been allowed to air, which is rather bonkers when you consider just how old the film is. The British Film Institute tried to release this uncut version in 2012, asking special permission from Warner Brothers, who not only denied the request to have the lost footage put back in, but also forbade the BFI to issue the film on Blu-ray. 
In a way similar to how Paramount have refused to release the uncut versions of the Friday the 13th series, Warner Brothers have actively opposed the release of the uncut version of The Devils, and all we have to watch today is the cut version, which is a true shame. And that was The Devils. It's the end of our show for this week. So, how was it? My return, I mean. Did I do well? Why not let me know? I'm on Twitter and Facebook under the Nasty Pasty Podcast, or you can email me on the Nasty Pasty Podcast at gmail.com. You can chat to me about horror movies in general, any of the films that I'm covering on the podcast. You can find the list on my Twitter and Facebook, or even just some feedback on the show. I'm all ears. Next week, we're tackling another relic of a bygone era, one that had a few memorable entries on the Video Nasties list too. Nazi exploitation. The two entries that we're covering, however, are sort of prototype Nazi exploitation films, being released before the genre really had its hook and became popular, and they're also rather serious examples that are less exploitative than their later counterparts. They're 1969's The Damned and 1974's The Night Porter. The Damned is a fairly long affair, being two and a half hours long, and The Night Porter is not too far off, being two hours. So that's possibly the longest films I've reviewed so far on the podcast, so let's hope that they're worth it. So we'll see you next week, guys. Everyone stay safe, and I'll be back in your ears very shortly. Tally-ho! Tally-ho!